Rick Carnes is the president of the Songwriters Guild of America and a songwriter himself, with credits on 40 platinum albums. His songs have been recorded by artists such as Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, Alabama, and Dean Martin. Since 1931, the SGA has fought to legally protect songwriters, the music they create, and their ability to earn a living from it. Rick has served as president of the SGA since 2004. Rick Carnes, welcome to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Uh, so uh, you're the president of the Songwriters Guild of America. You're an accomplished songwriter and musician. I think we should just dive in to share some of uh, your music, which also kind of deals with your, your creative process. And this is, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Can't even get the blues. Uh, yes, this is a song that was written way, way back in like 1980 or something like that. A friend of mine, Tom Dampier and I, uh, we sort of admired each other's uh, songwriting work, and we always thought one of these days we're going to get in a room, we're going to write a song. It's going to be a lot of fun because, you know, we, I think he's a great songwriter and he enjoyed my work. So we got together for the first time. We sat down. Uh, we started trying to come up with ideas. We went through our books, you know, where you have all your titles and all stuff, and we kind of jammed out a couple of groups and nothing worked. I mean, we sat there uh, for three and a half to four hours or maybe even more. We actually worked through lunch, as I recall, and we never got anything. I mean, not a thing, and, and that never happened to either one of us. We always were able to write something. And just as we were about to, we had like 15 minutes left, um, I said, man, you know, because he's a good guitar player, and I love to play guitar, I said, let's, let's play the blues. Let's just jam some 12-bar blues and have some fun at least, you know. So we started playing the blues, and Neither one of us could even play anything. I mean, we were just, we were horrible. And uh, he said, you know, some days you can't even play the blues. And I said, yeah, some days you can't even get the blues. And we both stopped, laughed, and said, there's our song. Let's write that song. But we only had 15 minutes left. So <laughs> we started writing. We got uh, the first verse and the chorus done. And we had to leave. We, we said we'd get back together. But driving home, I came up with the second verse and called him when I got home. And that was the end of the song. And strangely, we never wrote again. We wrote one time, wrote Reba McIntyre's first number one song. Never wrote again. I don't know why. It just didn't happen. <laughs> That's well. That's amazing. Well, it's that. It's like it's just like that magic thing, and the pressure of time, which I think was just uh, helpful too. Yes, it, the deadline, the looming deadline, has created more songs than anything other than a paycheck. <laughs> so, so let's listen to it here. Okay. Guess you got it all This is where it all hurts Seems like every time you leave me You try to think of something worse I can't even get the blues no more I try to worry like I did before And nothing happens when I walk the floor 
supposed to do I toss and turn but then I fall asleep So that was her first number one, and that right. really is it's great to be right at uh, like the beginnings of someone's career and see them flourish. Particularly yeah. a legend like Reba, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's made the song have tremendous staying power. There's like 115 versions of it on YouTube last time I looked. So, yeah, that was fun. Uh, and, you know, the, the song itself is based on a true story of a friend of mine who – you know, it's the old hippie guitar player, long hair, you know, ne'er-do-well, great guitar player. And he met a girl, and she completely domesticated him. He cut his hair off, got a job at a bank, um, came home one day, and everything in the house was cleaned out. The entire house was cleaned out, gone, everything. Never saw her again, has no idea what happened to her. It's amazing, huh? What a crazy story. And I asked him, I said, how, how do you get over that, Al? I mean, what, what do you do? He said, well, for a long time, I just I woke up every day and I was just miserable. I just had no idea what happened or what happened to my life. What I, you know? He said, and then one day I got up and I realized I wasn't as sad as I was the day before. And then the day after that, he said, after a while, it just wears off. He said, after a while, you, you know, you get over it, you know. And so I kind of put that into that song. It's weird because you operates on these other levels, and then you said as well it was a like looking for the inspiration. And you know, I suppose when I heard it the first time, I wasn't thinking about this. I should be thinking about you because I knew we were speaking. But I, mean, <laughs> um, I was, yeah, you thinking about. I was thinking like a love song. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right. You know, and it it's. Uh, there's a thing called prosody where the sound of the song is supposed to match the lyrics, you know, and that song is a very upbeat kind of a happy kind of sounding song. So sometimes you can break the rules. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting about, about rules and how, and how you break them. I mean, you have to know them first and. Definitely. Yeah. That, that's, that's what, that's what separates a great songwriter from an average songwriter is the great songwriter will always break one rule. You know, there'll always be one thing that they'll change that makes the song unique and individual. And where did you, I want to say it's more like inspiration and art, but where'd you learn the rules from the real foundation of. Okay. I, uh, I was a university teacher for a couple of years. I headed the songwriting department at uh, uh, state university here. And I went back through all the things that I had learned because no one ever taught me to write songs except for my mentor was a great songwriter named Paul Kraft and everyone should look him up. Uh, but I learned by reading books and studying creative writing because I did study poetry when I was in college. Um, but I basically boiled it down to uh, five processes, uh, you know, five elements of a song. And there's the rhythm, uh, basically the groove. There's the um, uh, melody. There's the lyric. There's the structure. And then there's the harmonic uh back of the chord changes, you know, those are the five elements of a song. And you have to, and I do them in that order. I like to start off with the groove, you know, because if you don't have the feel of the song, you don't have the emotion of the song. It's like, if it's a really driving, 
you know, rhythm, then you know that the lyrics can have is going to have a lot of rhythm, uh, lyrics, and it's going to have a certain um, attitude about it. And so I just go through those five processes, and I always do the melody before I pick up my guitar now because I realized I got to the point where the guitar was so much a part of me that it was changing my writing process. I was writing to the guitar instead of writing the melody freely. So I started writing just the melody, and then I would take my guitar and try to figure out what the chords were to harmonize that melody. The structure became the most challenging part of uh, songwriting to me because that's where you start developing your style. You know, your songs will have a certain structure to them that other people's songs won't have. And I learned structure um, basically by studying uh, song forms like the AAB form that the old jazz ballads used to use, and then verse, chorus, verse, chorus, the strophic structure, um, and and basically harmonic structure. Well, I went to music school and I learned uh, chord substitutions and uh, music theory and the sort of things that uh, you don't think that Nashville songwriters usually. Uh, do because they're mostly about three chords and the truth, you know. And uh, I was doing, um, you know, 50 chords and some vague approximation of the truth, you know. Uh, so that was kind of my background and my study was self-study, but uh, it was mixed in with um, some university stuff like uh, music school poetry, creative writing. And the rest of it, uh, some of it was actually Zen. I studied Zen for a long time and creativity and how to put yourself into an emotional space where things come in, you know, to put your antenna up and uh, be aware of the things that are going on around you that might inspire you. And, uh, you know, you always have to have an awareness of your surroundings, like songwriters do everything twice, you know, they experience the thing and then they stop and they think about the thing, you know, and so that's where the ideas come from is uh, being mindful, mindfulness of your surroundings and what's going on in your life, you know. And I think that's so interesting. I'm I I'm sorry I didn't know that you had a practice of uh, Zen, but it seems like it's very appropriate for the art of songwriting or being a musician generally. And musician then, generally, yes. Simplicity yeah. is hard, as they say. Yes, it really is. And um, one of the nice things about Zen is it keeps you in the moment, so it's very good for performance. You know, you if you have any sort of anxiety about being on stage or or your hand, you freeze up when you're playing the guitar. So Zen will put you into the emotion of the of the music more directly. And so that was very helpful to me, too. And it helped me with jazz guitar, which I suffered uh, my entire life learning how to play. <laughs> I, th I think of, uh, you know, I think of the immense courage of uh, both being on stage, but also the private or the more, you know, the behind the scenes process courage as well. But I th I'm thinking about, uh, you know, these Zen monks that they, um, I would say you bring, that the one person will stand above them and they'll bring down a sword and they have to catch it. And I think performance might be a little something like that. You it's know? like catching lightning in a bottle. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I just think, and I think about things and it makes so much sense that you study that. And then you also have these other, you were saying before uh, we began, you play chess uh, every, every morning or most Constantly. Morning. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, chess, chess, higher order mathematics and music all use the same parts of the brain. And so you'll find uh, 
concert pianists like Mark, uh, Mark Timonoff, uh, also uh, chess grandmasters. You know, you'll have physicists, uh, mathematicians like Emmanuel Lasker, people that um, have those various backgrounds will also play chess. Almost all of them. The thing that connects chess, higher order ma mathematics and music, is that with music, you have to visualize the emotion that you're trying to get across to somebody. You have to visualize the images and the metaphors, the ideas, uh, the melody that will convey that emotion. With chess, you have to picture the position that you're trying to achieve and then calculate the moves that will get you there. And in mathematics, you come, you finally, in higher order, order mathematics, you get to the point where you can't really explain the idea through the numbers. You have to have a metaphor to explain it, like Einstein, uh, basically developed his theory of relativity by picturing himself chasing light chasing a beam of light. So he had to have a metaphor that helped him organize the principle in the same way that a songwriter has to have um, a song that conveys that emotion that you have to have an image in your mind of what you're trying to achieve. It's almost like, I don't, I mean, everyone has a different method and you like, it's, it's interesting because you have all this discipline and you, you have a knowledge of all these song structures, as you say, that you have this um, academic uh, side. Yes, but I do. After, yeah, but then, and I think it's great. And then you have to forget about that. And then, and I always feel this thing with this Eureka or whatever it is, but uh, it's often like what the solution is about, like this problem is because you're thinking it. Tomorrow. It just seems like it's almost... You can overthink it, no question yeah. about it. I, I, But I think that the overthinking it is part of the process. Yeah, you need I, I don't it. know how many times I have worked and worked and worked and worked on something and concentrated and, you know, tried to force it. And then I finally give up, go get in the car, and on the way home, the idea comes to me. The second I stop thinking about it, all that stuff that I was trying to process in my head falls into place on its own. And then, boom, I have a moment where it all comes together. Sometimes you have to, uh, what is it, you let go of the knot that just gets tighter as you pull on it, you know? And that's what I had to do. You just had, I had to stop trying to solve the problem and let it solve itself, you know? And that's happened so many times. I don't know of any uh, creator of any stripe that hasn't had that same moment. I feel, I hope I'm alive to the rhythms of language. I don't know the songwriting process. I know about writing. And um, so the whole other level of having to make, turn it into a song is another is another issue. I don't know about that. But for me, and this happened so many times, and it was always like the first thing out and then that people would resonate with people. Just it just would be I would if I write something that's really complicated and maybe it sounds so perfect or uh, it's all laced it's all too it's a it's fine it's fine yeah. but I would write something that took me one minute two minutes I'm serious and they would be like that's brilliant and so yeah. now I just always try to do that <laughs> maybe ten minutes or something but I always always try to do it because it seemed like you get well, in your own way. There's a difference between intelligence and genius that I always try to point out to people because uh, they'll say, oh, he was a genius songwriter. I say, oh, no, I knew the guy was dumb as a box of rocks, you know, but he was a genius. He wasn't intelligent, but he was a genius. And let me tell you the difference. OK, the difference is that 
intelligence can find an answer that no one could ever think of. Genius is the person who finds the answer that was right in front of everybody all along and no one saw it but him or her. You know, genius is finding the simple solution that was right in front of everybody and no one saw it. That's genius. And I, I, I realize real genius every time I hear uh, a country song um, by one of these guys that makes these really, really simple lines and just tells the truth as directly as possible. And then you ask yourself, could I make that line any better? And you realize, no, I, 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 can't, write, I can't write that any better. You know, Harlan Howard was the master of the perfect, simple line. And he would write a line, and Paul Kraft, my mentor, Paul would get a record that had a Harlan Howard song on it, and he'd drop the needle on the first line of the song. And he'd try, he'd listen to the first line, and he'd try to write the next line just to compare his writing with Harlan Howard, his hero. And he said every single line, he would write a line and think, this is it. Harlan couldn't write this line any better. And the line would not, as he said, Harlan's line would not only be better, it would be much simpler, much more direct. And he said Harlan just had that innate ability to simplify and say the perfect line that no one else would have thought of, even though it was so simple, anyone could have thought of it. And when you're talking, uh, so I would, I think that I, I think a lot about educational systems and uh, this is an education initiative and how we can encourage or improve those models or so that people have access to at least cultivating their genius or their intelligence, their talent. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to get into politics, but I'll just say I, I, was in the teacher corps, which is like the Peace Corps for uh, teachers, uh, straight out of school. I spent two years teaching in, uh, you know, Title I poverty level schools. And I was struck by the fact that my kids in elementary school came to school with uh, no language facility at all. You know, some of them would have uh, maybe a 200 word vocabulary. They had not been um, exposed to language they they could they had as much facility as you could possibly have some very intelligent kids with the language they had they could say things in startlingly brilliant ways with very simple words but they never were exposed to the wealth of language that other children were being exposed to and there's a program here called head start and head start yeah head start takes uh, children at kindergarten level and gives them that exposure, gives them an environment to learn in and to grow. And they have proven over like 20 year study that Head Start uh, gives children a, a much better educational outcome, which gives them much better employment, which means that they pay much higher taxes. Okay, so this is one government program that actually creates money for the government. And yet, every chance they get, they defund Head Start. They defund early childhood education. And it makes no sense at all from any perspective. You're wasting minds and you're wasting money. And yet we do that over and over again. Uh, education has 
always been uh, one of my causes. You know, I've always hoped that we could do something about educating more people in a better, more effective way. And they, what do they do? They pull music and art out of the schools first and start concentrating on science, technology, engineering, and math. They call it the STEM curriculum. And that's just great. Now you have people who, who can answer the questions on the test if you tell them what the answers are, but they can't critically figure it out on their own. Therefore, you don't have any creativity, which is the basis of science, technology, engineering, and math. Don't take creativity out of a school if you want to have educated people. Yes, and I think I do want to, you know, be a part of like helping educate people for their future. So that, that's part of the thing. I I do understand they feel, oh, it's we're not being realistic if we, we have to prepare them for the future. But I think that you're right. There's creativity. You have to nourish that, that it's, uh, and then the other thing that you, if you look for the logical conclusion of a lot of, um, I mean, I believe we need STEM and we need all the, you know, yeah. it's about. Nobody's saying we don't need it, right. Yeah, but it's about creating sustainable solutions. It's balance. We need balance between creativity and just basic core scientific education, you know. Because the outcomes. Outcomes, because it's about problem solving. Mm-hmm. And they're like, that was. Oh, sorry, I'm talking over you. But I also think that the outcomes of a lot of STEM education, I mean, but in a few days' time, I'm interviewing someone who's a leader in cybernetics and different, you know, so I'm at that. But is that the outcomes for a lot of the applications of that, the, you know, what they will make in these fields is that it's uh, automation. So it's not, it's not, you think you're you're educating people the future, but you may be educating them to do away with their own jobs. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. But you know, it's what kind of jobs are we doing away with? Mm -hmm. That's the thing in the United States. um, We, we basically started investing in um, intellectual properties back in the 80s. We said, we're not going to have a manufacturing society anymore. We're going to have an intellectual property society. We're going to create patents, uh, art, uh, things that, things that, products of the mind. And then what we did was we did, we did do away with a lot of the manufacturing but then we didn't protect the intellectual properties. And so now we have so many people out of work and uh, you know, we've lost so many jobs and it's, it's taking away our middle class because we didn't protect intellectual properties like we should have. And you know, we, allowed, uh, we allowed an anonymous internet so that people could steal music and, and movies. And from that anonymous internet, we ended up with um, um, social media that does nothing but outrage people and and that has hurt the general culture actually so i think that intellectual property is very important i think that um science technology engineering and math i think that stem curriculum is very important but the thing we have to remember is that all progress is uh, solutions is solving problems and the way you solve problems is have a balance of ways to solve problems. And if we don't have creative, artistic sort of solutions to some problems, then we have a tendency to dehumanize the problems. And like you're saying, we end up with 
cybernetics that uh, has robot arms doing all the work. Um, and, you know, there's even there's even songwriting software now that will basically lay out the melody for you, write a, a five-voice fugue, uh, will compose um, songs for you. I don't think that we'll ever get to the point where we have uh, great works of art from that because it's hard to tap into human emotions if you don't have any human emotions. Uh, hi, Rick. I just wanted to jump in and ask a question. Um, sure, man. First of all, just going off what you just said about the uh, songwriting software, it's interesting. There's a a similar software for screenwriting. I studied uh, screenwriting <laughs> in school, and we had, had my, been my stepson of, is a screenwriter. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and it was it was this program where you, it fed um, this AI kind of bot all of these sci-fi scripts, and then it put out its own script. It <laughs> made no sense, but you know maybe someday. But then a lot of movies don't make sense either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what you were just saying, kind of about the anonymous internet and that becoming a part of uh, creativity and intellectual rights. Um, streaming, like music streaming has become a huge thing. Uh, things yeah. like Spotify, um, right. Apple Music, it, I mean, the list is endless. Um, and some people, like independent artists, will have either the pro and con where they say it's a good thing because now you don't have to mess with a label. You can Anyone can get their music out to the world. Distribution, and, right. Yeah, and then there's the negative side where you know, some people will say, well, at, that's at the cost of the independent artist not getting their fair cut anymore. Because I know that some people will say music streaming artists rarely make um, any amount of money unless they're in the hundreds of millions of streams. Um, right. So for someone like yourself, who's kind of been a songwriter for decades in this industry, um, what are your thoughts on uh, music streaming becoming kind of the predominant uh, source of music? Test music, uh, and I think that's good. It has also created uh, a, a, music has become stratified from what it used to be. It used to be you had your A, B, C level artist at the label, and the A level artist paid for the D level introductory artists. You know, uh, they take some of the sales from here and they put the money down here. Now you have, you know, five major artists at any time. None of the money goes down the chain to the B, C, D level artists. So you have this um, stratified set of super rich uh, people at the top. Everybody else is starving below. And I don't think that that's good for music. In fact, I know it's not good for music. Uh, I, I see, yeah, people thought that the digital age was going to bring out uh, a new middle class of creators because everybody would have worldwide distribution. <clears throat> what it actually did was it did away with copyright because you can't enforce your copyrights anymore. And it, it reverted us back to the 19th century where we had, you know, three or four songwriters like Stephen Foster, you know, was like the only songwriter uh, in the 19th century uh, because there was no money in it. And anything that isn't funded dies. And songwriting is not being funded right now, so it is dying. So I don't think that's good. Uh, you're creating uh, a permanent class of teenage songwriters. You know, once they hit their uh, middle 20s, they just start thinking 
And I'm not saying that you can't be a great songwriter between the age of 15 and 25, but um, believe me, I learned the vast majority of what I learned about songwriting from 40 to 55. Okay, so it's really important to have those songwriters that have that uh, career like I was lucky enough to have and get songs on the charts in five decades. You know, that's where you learn to grow and you can then mentor the people coming up, you know. But nowadays, what I'm most afraid of isn't that there aren't young writers that are going to write great songs. I'm afraid that they're not going to be able to learn from the old hands that I got to learn from, like Paul Kraft, and then they won't be able to take that forward and teach, and so songwriting in general will not progress. Hello, my name is Connor Kinsley, a performing arts podcaster with The Creative Process. Rick Carnes is an intriguing individual and a rare type of person. He's someone who has found his exact purpose in this life, and that's clear when listening to him talk about songwriting. It's no surprise that he's the president of the Songwriters Guild because he truly cares about songwriting as a profession. While some may see writing a song as a silly pastime, Rick sees it as creating a moment, an emotion, a point in time that will live on forever and help other people define their own lives. Something Rick says later in this interview that struck me on a profound level was this. Songs are the bookmarks of our lives. I think many people pursuing a career in the arts have a moment when they ask themselves, is this important? I know I've asked myself this many times. When you put so much effort into a song, a painting, a story, a movie, there comes a time when ambition and doubt meet at a crossroad and you wonder if you're wasting your time. There's a temptation to stop climbing and find a new path with less resistance. But think about it this way. Imagine if your favorite song didn't exist. Surely another would fill its place. Now what if that song didn't exist either? What if you didn't have your favorite song to play at the beach, or while you were driving, or when you used to cook dinner with your grandma? We take the music that creates these moments for granted because we can. There aren't just 10 songs made by 10 artists, there's 10 billion songs made by 10 million artists. A range of stories and emotions so vast that no single person could experience it all, and it's not made for that. If a song means something to even one person, then it has done its job. After listening to Rick, I see my relationship to music a bit differently, both in how I listen and how I create. There's no need to depreciate what I enjoy doing just because it's not profitable or what's expected of me. Humans have communicated through music since our very beginning, and I think Rick would agree with me when I say that continuing the tradition is just as important as anything else. And now, back to the interview. And tell us, because that's also another mysterious part, uh, you know, how that works with, you know, when you have, you have the song, you've written it, you have this, that, that fine tuning process with the producer. I mean, it's different oh, from yeah. that song, but. You know, I, I remember uh, a producer, I guess it should remain nameless because he probably wouldn't want me dropping his name, but he was a big producer. And 
uh, I was kind of work assistant, you know, for him uh, for a little while, just basically as an uh, apprenticeship to learn how to produce records. And he one time he just confessed to me. He says, "You know, actually, Rick, these are my records. These people are just singing and playing on them." <laughs> and I thought, you know, there are two ways to be a producer. One is to find the artist's vision and try to realize their vision, you know. And then the other one is you have the vision, and other people are just playing, filling out your vision. And of those two, uh. I I appreciated the first one more. I appreciated the idea of trying trying to make the artist vision come true. But then when you get in the studio and you're on the clock and it's costing a fortune sitting around waiting for this artist to try to figure out what they want to do and they haven't been in the studio their whole life and realized you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't, you know, some things aren't going to work in the studio. You start realizing why people end up doing the other thing, which is you go in with your vision and you produce your record with them singing on it. So I think that's one of the things that, that the, the streaming music thing and the democratization of uh, recording software and uh, being able to make a record in your house has been good for artists to be able to get their own vision out because now they're not under the constraints of the clock and the budget. You know, you can sit there and try it 50 times until you get it right. It may be boring, but you learn from every mistake. And so then we have artists who have true vision and the ability to execute that vision. So that's a good thing. We just need to be able to get them some money for the work that they're doing. And the other part, which I've always kind of, even though I have friends who are producers and sound engineers, but I don't get to be there in the room when they're when they're doing it. But yeah, that's I think it's somehow sometimes conflated that of producer and sound engineer and how I mean for those of us who aren't musicians. Yeah, well, the, a great sound engineer is um, very a very different beast from a producer because a sound engineer actually has to be like a scientist of gear you know you have to be able to listen to a female sing and go you know what this person i should try a c12 microphone on this person or i should try u87 or i should because this person needs this type of proximity effect to create their vocal with this kind of distortion at 2K. You know, these people are painters, I guess is the way I could do it. They, are, uh, they paint with sound. A producer is a visionary who creates structure. You know, it's like, uh, like a sculptor. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's two different beasts. You can obviously be able to do both. But the the true engineer I think of as a sound artist, and the true producer I think of as a record art producer. They, that's their medium is a record, and a record is a different thing than a song. Uh, a record is the perfect uh, confluence of art, band, and song all together meshing, and ev everything hitting on all cylinders. That's a producer's job. Uh, Rick, who, um, going off of that, who would you say is the most unsung hero in the recording atmosphere? Or I guess just music industry in general, but specifically with recording in a studio. Who's the most unsung hero? Recording in the studio. Well, you know, most of them are uh, 
once you get that good in the studio where I hear you, <laughs> you're not an unsung hero anymore. So I wouldn't be good at, at telling you that. In terms of songwriters, uh, there's a uh, a guy named Lewis Story that uh, no one's ever going to hear of, but he was a fabulous, fabulous singer and songwriter. Uh, and uh, yeah, he would he was the the Graham Parsons uh, country rock guy of of my generation, but nobody ever got to hear him. So, yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of people that are real idols of mine. But uh, in terms of recording, re the recording art itself has progressed way past me now. I'm I'm actually um, turned more into a composer uh, than a songwriter myself. I'm doing a, a children's project right now, and it's uh, basically along the lines of Shel Silverstein. Um, and where the sidewalk ends and stuff, except that we're doing an album that goes with it. And uh, I'm taking my poetry background and I'm bringing my songwriting to the poetry. And then I'm taking my engineering and producing uh, stuff that I got over the years and I'm making tracks that uh, put all of it together. So, yeah, I'm actually finally using every part of my creativity in one project, uh, which I've, you know, I'm now able to do because I have the luxury of sitting around in my studio doing nothing else, you know. Uh, unfortunately, people coming up in music right now, they don't have that. I mean, they, they're out there hustling. Um, you know, you got to spend most of your time working social media just to have a music career at all. And I think that's the worst thing that's happened in the digital space is that you have to spend so much time in promotion uh, compared to the amount of time you spend in creation. So let's listen to, uh, I want to, uh, it's really wonderful. I, I love that you've taken your your skills as an educator, as an artist, and let's just listen to t Take Time. And we'll be sharing some images as, as, as well as that of people, where people okay. can get the Yes, color. my wife is a, a graphic artist and a great singer. And uh, she's singing the song. And she actually did the artwork on it. I can like, show you just a little bit of it. This is one of the you know, pages. There's Morton the Snail that we'll be singing about. And here's the lyrics, you know. But anyway, you'll get the images. Morton the snail leaves a silvery trail winding along behind him. Traveling inches, not miles, each one brings him smiles with this song in his heart to remind him. Take time, go slow. Dreams cannot be hurried. They must grow. In hearts that are not worried Don't let trouble set the pace Keep that smile upon your face Life's great, you'll find When you just take time Relax, plant your nose in posies That's a beautiful uh, 
message I can imagine um, if for for all of us. I think actually, the older we get, we we forget to take time. But for young people too, it's a very good message to yeah, calm down, eat a little less sugar, you know. <laughs> uh, as you said, you know, you I'm just thinking about yeah that what you were discussing before about like genius takes um, is is someone who sees something that maybe already there but we're not seeing it and that's about taking time as well exactly this the whole idea was based on zen it's about mindfulness you know uh be present stop and smell the posies you know the, be be where you are now that's the thing was the message of the song but you know it's hard to get uh, a zen message across to a four-year-old kid you know who doesn't want to go to sleep you know <laughs> And that's, and that's, no, get them to calm down, read them, a, read them a poem about being relaxed, you know, and then try to give them a song with a string quartet in it. Maybe they'll go to sleep. That's the whole idea. Tell us a little bit about Waiting for My Shot. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's another song that my wife and I wrote uh, that is in the book. Uh, it's another children's song, but this was one that we wrote uh, outside of the book, but then realized when my daughter said, you know, you should put that in the book. Uh, we didn't think about it as a children's song. So we went back and rewrote the lyric so that it would be more of a children's song. And uh, I'm fond of this song. when you have something that began life as something else or it began with a different intention and it, it's sort of like when you write a song for a person they take it on and they add their voice yes uh, they repurpose it sometimes this is one of the things that they used to do on broadway they would write a, a bunch of songs for a movie uh, for a broadway show that didn't get made and they put it in the trunk they called it they just they actually had a big trunk of songs and next time there was a show they'd go through the trunk and see if there was any songs in the trunk that they could repurpose for the new show. And the Gershwins did that all the time. That was one of their main tricks. When you uh, work with an artist, are you usually, um, like, do you start from scratch with the artist and they say, I want to write a song about this experience I had, and they ask you to write it? 
Or are you usually kind of, like you said, pulling from your trunk? You say, oh, I have this song here. What are you more often doing? Is it kind of a random 50-50 or, well, yeah, what does that do? The first thing I did, because I, I, my, my wife and I were always put in the room with these brand new artists, you know, uh, they've kept making artists younger and younger. I mean, it got to the point where you, if you were in a room with a 16-year-old, it's like, wow, this is uh, an experienced writer. Uh, but we would sit down with them and talk to them about their lives, you know, just find out who they were, uh, how they got into music, what they wanted to say. And then once we figured out what they wanted to say, we'd say, have you got anything already that you want to say? And uh, 99% of the time, they either didn't have anything or they didn't have anything that would work, you know? And so then what we would do is we'd go, because I have a book of titles that's, you know, like this thick that go back 40 years. And I'd just thumb through the titles and I'd see if there was a title that was about anything that they talked about. And then I'd say, oh, well, I got this title. And if they liked any of those titles, we'd write that. Okay. And most of the time that's what happened. But if they didn't like any of those titles, we would just sit there and work on melody, work on grooves, get something going that they sounded good on. Because it's not about having a great song. It's about having a song that makes them sound great. Okay. And so you'd get something that would make them sound great. And at that point, Usually, if you're lucky, the emotion of that melody and that groove brings out something from the artist that they want to say, you know, and you'll just start writing on that. If it doesn't bring out anything that they want to say, maybe you've got something that you can imagine them saying. So it's a multifaceted process, and you usually just start by talking to them. And then from that conversation, you turn it into a musical conversation. Very interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Sure, sure. That's just our way of doing it, you know. It's uh, this is just a, a side note, but it's an interesting project that someone else who's participated in the creative process, uh, Terry Radigan. I don't know if you know her, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do know, know Terry. Yeah. yeah, so she, you know, that project that she has where she, there, there might be um, vets or there might be homeless people come in. And, right. And it's this yeah. process of listening. Right. And then an hour creates, and those songs are so moving. They tell them, they tell her their life and a song comes out of the end of it. These non-musicians. Yeah. A great, uh, a truly great, great songwriter named Bob Regan uh, has been working with the um, war veterans who suffer from PTSD and he gets them into songwriting groups and they write songs about uh, their experiences in their lives. And it's very helpful with PTSD because it, it takes emotions that you have repressed because you can't deal with them and gives you a safe way to express them and release them. And, uh, uh, you know, bless his heart. He's one of the Bob Regan. He's a saint. That's all I can say. And apparently they're writing some really good songs. Yeah, I think um, it's something you will you get to the truth. You, there's just a lot of buried truths that people have. And it's so nice when you can show them that they're that they're artists. A lot of people don't feel they have permission to say they're artists. You know, the, their the, life is worth. I'm so glad you said that thing about the truth, because uh about 30 years into my songwriting career, one day, I had written everything that I could possibly write, nothing else to write about. But then I remembered that um, that Zen thing about everything seen in its proper light is holy, is sacred. You know, e even the simplest thing has its place in the universe. 
and it's just as important as everything else, even the things that you think are the most important, like money or cars or something like that, something as simple as a cup of coffee is just as important. It has its place. And so I started writing songs about nothing. I know that it sounds crazy, but I was trying to find smaller and smaller things to write about. And one day I walked in and I, um, I had nothing to write about, so I wrote about a pencil. And then I wrote about a cup of coffee. I wrote a song about a $5 bill. I was trying to write songs about nothing. And I realized that the songs about nothing worked if I did one thing, if I told the truth. If I was making up stuff about this thing and trying to make it seem more important than it was, it didn't work. And so if you're stuck for a way to say something that you think will make it commercial or you think will make it meaningful or great, don't. Just make it truthful. If you just tell the truth, it will work. And I want to, I realize that we haven't, although indirectly, I, with through all this talk about copyright and everything, we've been discussing the Songwriters Guild of America. But I do want to, before we go into that, we need to celebrate the history and your different initiatives. Um, but some, I, I want to speak about some of the other, you know, artists who collaborated with or who, I mean, it's a wide range, as you said, from Reba McIntyre to like Dean Martin has sung your songs. So just tell us a little bit about those different artists. You know, that's funny because um, my wife is a jazz singer, obviously, and a great jazz singer, and she's a fabulous jazz melody writer, okay? And I was always a lyricist, and so I could hear her melodies and imagine the words to it, and so that was our co-writing process. But we also sang harmony well together, and so we had this sort of Everly Brothers kind of country process that we did. Uh, so that was our artistic process and where we found we fit together. But writing with other artists and writing songs for other artists is really just a roulette wheel, you know? Uh, you, you can write a song specifically for an artist and miss it completely 90, you know, nine times out of a hundred. But every so often you write a song for, for yourself it ends up being recorded by another group and then picked up by somebody you would never think of. And that's why it was so great that people used to do covers of songs in their own way. Like um, uh, Frank Sinatra could cover a song in his own way that Diana Crowell would do years later and she would have her own way of doing it and put their mark on it. And so those great songwriters of the 30s and 40s wrote these generic songs that the artists could bring themselves to. Nowadays, you have to write songs so specifically, you know, it's, it's become uh, a market of, okay, they're looking for this type of song about this kind of thing, and it has to be done by this date. So that's project writing. A lot of times you're doing that for movies, you know, and, and theatrical productions like Broadway stuff. It's not the same old radio market that it used to be where you would write uh, a generic song and you get 10 covers on that song, you know. Uh, the Dean Martin song was a, a swing song that my wife and I wrote that was picked up by a bluegrass group called the Whites. Um, and then Dean Martin heard it and cut it his own way. He kind of took it back to the sort of lazy swing that we had. And so that's how those things happen. In terms of sitting down with artists and, and creating stuff, some artists you click with and some you're never going to click with. And, and Steve Warner and I uh, and Steve and Janice and I 
clicked really well and we could always get something, you know, and so we got multiple recordings. Reba McIntyre, I got six or seven cuts on her. There were some artists who were almost like client artists that you clicked and gelled with them. But I don't know what that is and I couldn't I couldn't guess how to have that happen except get in the room with as many artists as you can and the ones that work, stay with those if you can. So, yes, it's well, it's amazing. You've had and, and uh, you can, of course, uh, read about Rick and all of his songs and how many platinum, uh, how many have gone platinum. Yeah, if you have time to waste, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's an amazing career. And so we see why um, you're president of the Songwriters Guild of America. Just tell us about the history and your different initiatives. And there's educational initiatives or uh, I guess it's kind of mentoring or songwriting projects. Yeah, if you got a couple of hours, let's start. Um, now, uh, I'll, I'll just say real quickly, the Songwriters Guild was born in 1931 on Broadway in a songwriter's strike, which nowadays we can't even consider. But let me simply say, there's an initiative out there right now. Uh, I forgot, the, the Pact or something they call themselves. It's an anonymous group of songwriters who are trying to uh, get artists and producers to stop putting their names on our songs and taking a percentage. And I thought, you know, that's that's 10 steps away from a strike, but it is the same impetus, the same idea, the same energy out of which the songwriter skill was born. And I'm glad to see things starting to come back around full circle because you have you nobody gives you power. No one ever gives up power. You have to take power. And <laughs> Artists need to take, I mean, songwriters need to take their power back. They need to stop giving away their songs. They need to stop giving away. Nowadays, every song has six people on it and only one person wrote it. You know, let's go back to the days when one person wrote the song, one person recorded it, one person produced it, one person engineered it, you know, and not everybody that had anything to do with the song puts their name on the song. So, that's the kind of issue that the Songwriters Guild was born doing. And then it got more and more complicated as it went along. In the 50s, um, we started auditing uh, publishers. We, we were the first ones to get songwriters a contract because up until the 1930s, songwriters weren't working on contracts. The the basic songwriters contract, and you can see it in this business and music and at the Guild website, um, songwritersguild.com, you can see the original songwriting contract that is still used today as the boilerplate songwriting contract. Uh, we have always lobbied uh, and uh, uh, sued, litigated copyright cases, uh, and we continue that today. We do education. Uh, we do events. Uh, we do everything we can because that, that will do the thing that our mission statement says is we protect songwriters. That is our mission statement. So anything that falls under that rubric is what we do. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful um, mission to give that support because, as you say, the music needs it. Now, everyone always realizes the names of the people, the lives and the thoughts and the dreams and imagination that goes into it. And, but without that, Who's <laughs> where's the music coming from? Yeah, that's a good question. We um, we want to see the continuation of songwriting as a profession, you know, so that 
uh, a kid like me who's 13 years old and, and they say, are you going to be a scientist, a technologist, an engineer, or a mathematician? I'm going, no, I'm going to be a songwriter. A what? <laughs> like, we want people to be able to say, yes, I'm going to be a songwriter, and yes, that is a profession. And that's something because everybody in my family was dentists and every single one of them, you know, told me the same thing. You know, it's nice to be able to do this music thing, but at some point you've got to have a real job. You know, you have to have a real job. So, and I've never done anything my whole life but write songs. You know, I, I taught school for a couple of years, but, uh, th but that was about songwriting. My entire life has been songwriting. Okay. I fear that the next generation isn't going to have any guys like me, no girls, no anybody coming up that can say, I'm going to be a songwriter my entire life. And that's what I'm striving for. I'm striving for a profession of songwriting because I truly believe that songwriting is an art that grows over time. You get better at what you do. And if you have to stop doing it at 25 so you can pay for your rent, then that's the death of art. And we must promote careers in songwriting. Mm. And because it nourishes us in so many ways that we don't even understand and allows us to speak to people. Songwriters create the meaning in people's lives. You know, and we don't, you know, whenever, when you're, when you're married, you have a song. When you fall in love, you have a song. At a funeral, they play a song. When people go off to war, they're, you know, singing a war ballad. I mean, songs create the meaningful moments in people's lives. People bookmark the moment they met and kissed for the first time with a song. Songs are the bookmarks of your life. Your life is not going to have those meaningful moments cemented into your heart and soul without those songs. That's a critically important job. That's worth paying for. Um, so I want to, you know, just in closing, because you've been so generous with your time, um, and you've really told us a lot about what the arts have given you and what they give society, um, you know, what music has given you. But just to think about the future, you know, what would you really like uh, young people to know, preserve and remember? I think the one thing they need to know, and I, I, and I know they'll figure this out if they have a chance to stay in songwriting long enough, is the magic of the truth that I discovered after 30 years, that the truth has an intrinsic value. And if you want your song to be a classic, get to the truth. You know, don't try to write what's current in the market or what's hip now, go, go. Just stay with the simple truth. Uh, in terms of what I, what I want to see music go to, I want to see, um, I don't want to see music continue to be all one thing all the time. I'm tired of a market where there are five artists all doing exactly the same version of the same song over and over again. I want to see a thousand different types of music that everybody knows about, not just that it's because it's being created, but people don't find out about it. Uh, I want to see uh, creators like Luca Mendaka in Brazil. I want somebody to find out about her because she's just fabulous. You know, this is it. I, I want more diverse music to spring up and be recognized. Uh, and the last thing and most important thing to me, and I know this is why I got involved in the Songwriters Guild, I want creators to be able to make a living creating. 
you know, I, I want people to make a, a living creating. I don't want I, when somebody says to that 13 year old kid, you know, it, you know, it's it's great to be playing the guitar. But at some point, you got to put that guitar up and get serious and get a real job. I want them to be able to point to somebody in their family and say, well, but uh, Uncle Rick never put his guitar up and he made a good living. And then everybody shuts up and lets the kid go practice guitar. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, we should have that freedom that we had as as children and to be able to carry it into their adult lives as you've shown with you, your own example and through your greater advocacy work uh, on behalf of songwriters and musicians and bringing us the music that we can all hold hold to our hearts um, to, as you say, bookmark those, those important emotional moments. Uh, so I want to uh, thank you, Rick Carnes and the Songwriters Guild of America for sharing your stories about music and for your advocacy and what you do to nurture and inspire artists Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you, Mia, and thank you, Connor, and you guys have a great day. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Connor Kinsley. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. The songs I Can't Even Get the Blues No More, Take Time, and Waiting for My Star to Shine were included in this episode with the permission of Rick Carnes. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.